Divorce doesn't just affect the parents and children involved. From co-workers and employees to friends, neighbors, and spouses, the toxic fallout of divorce and years of mismanaged conflict can touch us all, all over North Carolina and America, changing the way we approach the world. Ashley Nicole Russell believes in a better way forward. Drawing on her personal and professional experience, Ashley Nicole is changing the conversation around divorce and conflict resolution as a whole. Providing thoughtful insight into this culture of conflict and the statistical effect on children and adults while offering collaborative strategies at home and in the workplace. It's time to find a better way forward, both individually and as a community of people across America, here on Divorce Healthy. Welcome to Divorce Healthy. We are in the season of collaborative, and today we are finally going to be talking about cryptocurrency. I think I teased this with Aaron Levine like five episodes ago and said it was going to be like the next episode or the next, but unfortunately, we had a ton of really important guests, and uh, we were not able to get crypto on until now, but after long await and after much ado, we have Ben McLawhorn here, who is actually my law partner at McLawhorn and Russell. And we're going to get to him in a minute. He's going to shed some light on cryptocurrency with us. He's been in the crypto world since 2017, studying it and buying and all of that type of thing. And he and I have really spent a lot of time in this, a lot more than I think a lot of attorneys are spending, and especially family law attorneys. And so we wanted to bring that information to you. And how does this relate to the collaborative series? I believe it is just another reason why it is best, if you can, to settle and collaborate because of the information that you will learn today. And this information is brand new and the legal system takes a long time. That's appropriate. We don't want those laws to change overnight, but it does take a little while for it to catch up to what's going on in the world. And so because of that, being in a place where you can be in a conference room, analyzing numbers that may be a little bit more difficult, it's going to be better. And we're going to tell you all about that. And crypto to me and family law have always been a very interesting place. I think that there's a lot of no man's land ahead of us in the crypto world, just with valuing all the different types of cryptocurrency that there are especially if someone has a mining apparatus or is able to mine crypto and is actively doing that. When it comes to non-fungible tokens as well, I think that the concept of those and the abstract of that is incredibly intense. So for people to understand it, especially if one person's buying it and the other person's not buying it, to bring two people up to speed to be able to have a discussion about splitting it equally is going to be very difficult. And then we have this huge thing, the metaverse. People living whole lives in the metaverse, concerts going on with Paris Hilton in the metaverse. Ralph Lauren has his clothes for sale in the metaverse. Well, how do we divide those assets? And what if you have a meta wife? Then what does that mean for what's going on with your family law case? So I have brought in Ben, and he is a litigator. Now, don't get upset. He is here to provide good information for us as to what happens if you happen to end up in court. Obviously, that's not the goal. But we want to protect our clients. We provide quality service. In order to be able to do that, we have to be knowledgeable about these things. So, Ben, thank you for coming on and talking to me about this topic. So, thanks for having me on, Ashley Cole. I think it's been a little while since you had me on last. I'm excited to be here and to talk about cryptocurrency. There's a lot of different things that are in play here. 
And I think you you kind of hit the nail on the head there at the beginning when you're talking about divorce and things like that. And, you know, you've got these new, I mean, cryptocurrency is relatively new. I mean, and especially now with non-fungible tokens, you hear people buying, spending millions of dollars on these things that a lot of people don't understand exactly what they are. And, and I can tell you in North Carolina, if a lot of people don't understand it, there's probably a lot of attorneys out there that don't understand it as well. And so you need to have somebody who's knowledgeable in this space, who understands what these digital assets represent and how they're to be handled during a divorce or really coming up in any kind of valuation for these things. You need to understand some of the principles behind it. So today we aim to kind of educate a little bit on what exactly digital assets can be consisted of and, you know, how exactly you should approach these kinds of things, you know, should you find yourself in that unfortunate situation where you're looking to divorce your your current spouse, but you know that they may have, you know, several hundred or several hundred thousand dollars in these assets. That happens on a daily basis now, especially with younger generation, those under 40, a lot of standard investments like stocks and bonds, people have diversified and a lot of people include somewhere between 5 to 10% of their portfolio as a digital asset, right? It's something on paper that you don't actually, is intangible to some degree. So what I'd like to talk about is kind of how these things are purchased, how they're stored, how they're maintained. Absolutely. So one question before you get into that, because I think that is the exact answer to the question is, if we start from the basics and two people are divorcing and they're trying to get together their assets or they're thinking about their assets, Ben, as an attorney who is showing up in court is it important to disclose that? Is it important to talk about it? And is it a, a relative, relevant information that's going to be collected by you if you're taking on a case by me? So I think that's like step one, because some people I think believe, oh, that's not really part of this. And that would be false. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, talking about it is key, right? That's the thing with these is that this is a computer account where somebody could be hiding it from you, right? There's always that issue to worry about. You know, it used to be, or does somebody have bank accounts in the Caymans, right? Or they have some account in Panama that you don't know about where they could potentially be secreting money. And we talk about this like it doesn't happen, but it happens every day. People do this. And with these digital assets, it's so much easier because you can leave a very small, albeit it's still there, you know, digital footprint of buying and assessing and holding on to these assets. But ultimately, you're not going to know about it unless you and your partner talk about it or unless you have to you know, take the unfortunate step of subpoenaing that information from a potentially from a, an exchange. But there are ways around that, too. And so knowing and understanding that is key and knowing that your attorney would know about how to get it if the person was not forthcoming with that information. Disclosure is part of our law. You know, when we do equitable distribution, those kinds of things. We do an affidavit, which is an inventory of all the, the assets and the debts that the parties own. And if, you know, if this isn't disclosed and then we find it later, judges are not going to be happy to look upon that if it got to that point where you were hiding or a potential spouse is trying to hide something. So talking about it is key. In purchasing these things, there's three, three or four different ways you can buy bitcoins. Obviously, there's Bitcoin ATMs where you put your credit card in and you can buy bitcoins. You can buy them from an exchange like Coinbase. Uh, which is a highly prominent one here in, in the United States. Then there's also something called local Bitcoins where you can literally meet people at restaurants. They do meetups and things like that or bars, give them cash and they can transfer you Bitcoin. And that goes into a, a public wallet address, which is technically searchable, but there's no database of who owns what. 
And so a lot of that is very hard to figure out unless you know that somebody has that account. It's going to be very hard to find. Wow. I had no idea people could like meet up. So that was that like the original way that they did it, but they still do it today. Yeah. So there's, I think the website's like local bitcoins and yes, people still do that, right? You can meet up and to some extent, I mean, that's a untraceable transaction unless you knew that they had cash before and then you asked them where it went and they told you, well, I went to this meetup and this guy sold me bitcoins and now the government doesn't know about that money and therefore you probably don't know about it either unless somebody's talking about it. So that still happens. And then once somebody is given bitcoins, you have to store them somewhere. There's three basic places that you can store it. You can keep them on an exchange like Coinbase, which there are potential pitfalls with doing that. Like your information could get lost or you could lose your password. Yes. And they're just custodians of your money and you don't actually have the private keys. And so you don't actually own the Bitcoin. They are holding them for you. But by keeping them on exchange, people do that so they can trade them. It's just like like a stock exchange almost. And it makes it easier. So you can keep it on the exchange. You can keep it on a hard wallet, which would be something like a flash drive where you actually have the coins on this wallet. You have to plug that into a computer to then transfer them or whatever you're going to do or trade them. Um, and then they also have soft wallets, which was like a, a software wallet, which would be program on your computer, which would hold, hold in quotation marks, obviously the Bitcoin. So that's like BlockFi. Yeah, something like that where you could access them. They were stored offline, but on a software wallet. And then with that, you know, you have your private keys, which is a collection of words, which are unique to your specific wallet address that's your what they call your private keys and that's how you access them estate attorneys nowadays who are keeping those kind of private keys for people in in their will or in a separate place because there could be millions of dollars in account and if you don't have the string of words used to unlock that account it can be lost forever and that's happened that happens more often than you would think we're not talking about just knowing that they have them right we're talking about how are they storing them where's the password because if you can't get it you can't get in and so you need to make sure that in valuing and coming up with these assets or discovering them that you have an attorney who would understand 100% what all is going on here, especially nowadays with, I think right now we're kind of in a market slump. I think all the markets are in a slump due to this rampant inflation and what, what we've been experiencing. But, you know, one point Bitcoins were worth $60,000 a piece. Nothing, I think at the time of recording this is somewhere around 20000 but when you think about that, they started as cents, you know, or fractions of a cent. Half cent. Yeah. Yeah. Fractions of a cent many years ago. And now they've ballooned. And like not that many years ago, though. Like in reality, Bitcoin was created. Like what was the first? Like when did it come onto the market? It was like 2005. And so the thing about Bitcoin is that there's only ever going to be a certain number of Bitcoins. So that's why... To be able to have one has become such a thing. There's obviously a supply and demand issue here. And I think that that's really cool. It also deals with people who don't like banking systems and feeling like they can't trust the banking system. It, it kind of alleviates that. So those are some of the reasons why it was created. But the mining aspect of it. So what about, so that's all if people came into this essentially since this last decade, but not since... When people really began this, where they had like mining machines or attached to their own electricity to pull Bitcoin. And then how would anybody know that they ever did that? Where would that be stored? So what do you know anything about the mining aspect of it? That's always so intriguing to me. Yeah. So the mining is is how the transactions occur. So 
Bitcoin is what they call a blockchain. It is a chain of all the transactions that ever occurred. And I've, I've just realized it. It's January 3rd, 2009 is when the first Genesis block, the first block of Bitcoin was mined. So that was at the height of, you know, the economic downturn of 2008, 2009, where the younger generation wasn't trusting as the bank so much. And so the way that this works is that these transactions occur, meaning the Bitcoin has to exist before it can be exchanged. If not, it doesn't go through. It gets verified by these nodes all over the planet. And the way that it's stored is a cryptographic hash, like 256-bit encryption, which is a, a large amount. It's huge um, computerized tra- calculations that have to occur. And essentially, all the miners are fighting to be the one that solves the chain and earns the Bitcoin as a result thereof. And you would earn that and it would be given, it would be going to a certain address. And so, you know, if you see that your husband or wife has a couple computers in a closet and they're always running, (laughs) you know, you might have, or if they have a business venture like that, you know, there are several businesses in North Carolina where you go in a warehouse and it's nothing but computers mining Bitcoin. Used to be more lucrative, obviously, when Bitcoin was worth a lot more. But now it's kind of based on market rates, whether or not people will continue to mine it at the capacity they are now. But once, you know, that's basically earned income, if you're looking at this from a property standpoint, in terms of settling a marital estate, they've paid for electricity, they have their computer running that is essentially working for the money that is earned. So it's actively getting that money. So that would be, you know, if that occurred during the marriage, that would be, you know, marital income, right? So that could be used for purposes of, you know, post-separation support or alimony, those kinds of things. And then, you know, once it's earned or if during the marriage somebody buys a lot of Bitcoin and then keeps it, that's part of the estate for equitable distribution purposes. So there's a difference there. So in both places, it actually hits. Yes, certainly could. I hadn't even thought about the fact that it's actually income coming into the household if you're mining it. And then I guess if you're trading it and creating income, but if you're still holding it in your account, then you're not going to experience it there. But if you're physically mining it, that is creating actual income into your household, which is, even think about it that way. So many facets of this can affect family law because at the end of the day, if the family is creating this as part of their overall estate, then the family has to figure out how they're going to divide it. And someone generally, one person's going to know a lot more about this than the other person because this is such a niche area of topic. That's very true. And even people that don't understand a lot about it, you know, most people I know do have a Coinbase account, right? It's easy. It's an app on your phone. People can pay you in cryptocurrency. You can receive it. And, you know, some retailers do accept it. I mean, there's been tales of people accepting, you know, Bitcoin as down payments on houses, even here in North Carolina, because it's at first it was kind of a unique idea or kind of thought that, you know, was had by Satoshi, who was the guy who created this, who has remained anonymous through the years to create this trustless system to where the money has to be there. So you're not giving it to a bank and the bank's not backing the check here. It is backed by the the full faith and credit of everybody that believes in it and everybody that is running a node. And so it's kind of a unique social experiment that has seen a tremendous increase in value. And so knowing how to access that stuff, knowing how to to get around it if you can't access it. So short of, you know, linking a public wallet address to your spouse, it's very tough to identify these assets if they're being hidden. But now if they keep things on a coin at some point they've probably transferred or traded their bitcoins, right? Because a lot of people do hold on to them because they know that there's a finite amount. But at the same time, as the value fluctuates, people would trade them for other digital assets or trade them for cash. Now, to do that, they'd have to go on some exchange. You know, there's 
Binance is a big one. Uh, they're out of China. Coinbase is the big one in America. And there's also Kraken, which is in America. And that was the, um, Zuck, uh, not Zuckerberg, but the two brothers that. Oh, that were with Facebook to begin with. That were with Facebook. I can't remember yeah, their they, names. they own that. But the, so anytime that Bitcoins or whatever is put on that exchange, this person, whoever is trading these assets, they would have had to provide their contact information to these exchanges in a process called KYC, which is know your customer. Same thing when you go to the bank and open up a bank account. They got to see your ID. You know, they're checking these things. So only if they're trading it or cashing it in for money, would you actually know that it exists from a like more obvious standpoint on your computer or on your phone or coming to your bank account at that point? Yeah. So if you, if you saw that there was a, de- a, de- a large deposit from Coinbase coming into your bank account and you didn't know what it was, and you know your, your spouse is buying all these things with that money, we would then know that they had a Coinbase account. So that would at least provide us one access point to potentially, if they were withholding the information, right? You can always send a subpoena to Coinbase with their name and address and everything. And you know, as long as it's a lawfully issued subpoena, they'd have to comply with that and you'd be able to see the records. But short of that, you know, it's very tough to find out about these accounts if they are on, if they've gone to local Bitcoins, for example, if they've gone somewhere and paid cash for Bitcoins that were put in a, a wallet that you didn't know the address to. Could be that those things would be very easy to hide, but not, like we've kind of talked about this entire time is knowing how to access those, knowing how to ask the right questions too, if you believe that your spouse is holding on to these things. Because, you know, we aim especially in litigation, that's the majority of the reason we litigate, right? Somebody's not telling the truth about what they should be. Part of any kind of equitable distribution or settling a marital estate, you have full and fair disclosure is required. And so, you know, if you catch them lying, you know, it's not going to go good in their favor, but knowing that these things exist and knowing how to access them can only be more beneficial as as people continue to buy into this stuff. And I think the bigger thing about that was Coinbase actually paid several million dollars this past year for the Super Bowl. And they put on all those ads and they were, I think it was like a blank screen with a, like a QR code. They're obviously aiming at the younger generation. They want to get those kind of people involved in buying and selling digital assets. And so I think as the future, you know, as we proliferate more towards this digital dollar and not actually having cash, that these kinds of assets will take a higher place in society and more people will have them. And so knowing exactly how you can manage those things, plan for those. And you know, some, and even now some IRAs and some 401k retirement accounts have dedicated percentages to digital assets. It's very much crazy. Right. Which is crazy because we didn't think it was going to be traded on the open market. And there are slight areas to where they can actually do that now. So um, let me ask you this. So if someone is in North Carolina, obviously they need to hire you if they're not able to come to a settlement agreement or not able to get their spouse convinced to do a collaborative process or their spouse has already filed because you need an attorney who kind of knows what they're talking about. But if they're not in North Carolina, they're somewhere else in the state, they can't hire you. What is it that they're needing to look out for? They're needing to be discussing this with their attorney to possibly send discovery questions. They're needing to, can you elaborate on what your thoughts are from a litigation perspective? And then I'm going to kind of then answer this with the collaborative response as well. Yeah. So the the litigation perspective in that is there's this process in litigation. And anytime a lawsuit is filed, you open yourself up to the rules of discovery. And that's uh, in the North Carolina Rules of Civil Procedures. I think it starts around 26 and it goes to Rule 
maybe 39 or something like that, probably a little bit further. And it goes through the processes and how you ask for information. A large part of that is requests for production of documents, bank statements, retirement account statements, mortgages, deeds of trust, titles to cars, any kind of document evidencing property is asked for. Attorneys in North Carolina have been doing this a lot longer than I do, so they have a but roughly a template, right? They might adjust you know, some way or another, depending on the client that they're asking stuff from, or the opposing party, I should say. Here's the thing. Under North Carolina law, if you don't ask, I don't got to tell. And people don't realize that, especially in discovery. You have to be very specific in what you're asking for. You can't be overly broad. You can't be harassing or anything like that nature. But if you don't ask if they have any digitally stored assets, if you don't ask, do they have any accounts that hold digital assets? If you don't ask for that stuff, then you haven't done your due diligence to, that, to some regard. And, you know, this is 20, we are in 2022. Technology continues to proliferate our everyday in society. These are things that would need to be asked for up front. And, talked about up front. And like we've talked about how easy they are to hide. Well, if you don't ask and they never respond or or they don't ever come and tell you directly, then you're never going to know. So I would encourage most marriages, if they were going to be good to have a full and fair financial disclosure, unfortunately, people hide things. And so keeping that in mind, um, you just want to know as much as you can about that. And someone may say, well, I don't want Bitcoin because I don't want to know what to do with it or how it works or any of that. I don't want half of it. So do I care? How would that play into the overall estate? So, yeah. So say you're unfamiliar with it. You don't even know the first thing about it. You certainly, it's important to remember that Bitcoin now is viewed by the court as property. And it would carry the same kind of effect as saying somebody gets the house and you get to keep your retirement account have the same kind of value. So you say, well, he's got $60,000 in Bitcoin. I don't want the Bitcoin. He can keep that, but I want my half. I want the 30000 And, you know, it doesn't have to be an in-kind, you know, distribution. It could say, well, I want the cash for it or whatever it needs to be. And whoever, you know, would, would hold the Bitcoin could make that decision if they wanted to sell it and turn it into cash and then make that distribution. But as far as like having okay, well, you trade the house for the equity and the generally that's going to have to be by agreement between the attorneys. Because if you make it all the way through litigation, it's in kind in the state of North Carolina that, you know, we're dividing the house and then we're dividing the retirements, then we're dividing the property. And that's the way it has to play out unless the parties agree that they are not going to divide it that way. So one of the big issues if you're in litigation would be that you're stuck, kind of stuck in that place. If you're not able to negotiate your settlement up front, either through your attorney, through a consent order, or through settlement negotiation and not file in court and just have a separation agreement, then the court is going to need to know about it. Then they're going to need to distribute it. And they're personally going to want to distribute it. And so that is where you walk into a whole nother area, because not only do you need your attorney to know what's going on, you need the other attorney to know what's going on, and you need the judge to know what's going on about the Bitcoin itself. So at that point, you're basically asking a lot of people to have a knowledge base of something that not a lot of people have right now. So in North Carolina, what do you think the percentage of legal professionals in the family law system is, including judges and attorneys that actually know enough about Bitcoin to be able to understand if they're looking at financial statements like bank accounts are those transactions coming in from those accounts it, are they 
knowledgeable enough to recognize from a discovery response what a Bitcoin account would be or what it would look like if it was just a series of numbers? Like what percentage of the legal community and litigation do you think actually knows what they're talking about? So I would think, and from my experience, obviously the more populated areas are more likely to have a little bit more experience with this. You know, there is, and especially because I practice here in Wake County, there are a lot, they have Bitcoin meetups, things like that, where people actually do meet up and talk about the future of cryptocurrency and, you know, can also exchange Bitcoins and, and do anything of that nature. So I think the percentage is a little bit higher depending on the population and also depending on the age of the population. Some of my counties further east, you've got a lot of older attorneys, a lot of older judges. It's easier to see there that the percentage would be much lower. You know, somewhere around maybe 5 to 10%, I think, of those people would understand exactly what this digital asset was, how, you know, how it could be classified, how it would be valued, and how it certainly would be distributed. You're asking, you are right that you would be asking a lot of people in the state who have no idea about that stuff to now come in all of a sudden and say, hey, well, you need to do this and we're going to order you to do this, but we exactly don't know how to order you to do this because we've never done it. Like with the retirement account, you know, you have to have a qualified domestic relations order if it's a qualified account and you have to be able to divide it. And that is based on the plan administrator. Every single financial retirement account has a different plan administrator, different plan. Some of them overlap, but a lot of them don't. So depending on how it goes, your quadro has to completely change depending on, is it a military account? Is it a fidelity account? Are we dealing with TIA craft? So now we have a whole nother set of those that would need to have an understanding. And qualified domestic relations order in and of themselves are a lot of work. And it's a lot of places where attorneys find themselves in an unknown area where they don't actually understand what they're doing and how to split those accounts, for instance. With a retirement account, you need it to be a pro rata share. That way, the oldest shares are split the same way that the newest shares are. Well, what do we do about the oldest Bitcoin versus the newest Bitcoin? Like, is that going to matter? Do we need to do a pro rata distribution of the Bitcoin accounts or cryptocurrency accounts? And then there's non-fungible tokens, which is absolutely a mind-boggling experience for some people. And honestly, it still is for me. I mean, it's it's a drawing in cyberspace that is one of a kind by a quote artist. And that person is selling part of the blockchain that that picture is basically representing. Can you give me some help here? Because it's still hard for me to describe. (laughs) So the non-fungible token is a digital drawing. You're right in that regard. Some kind of file it can be a text file. It could be a, a screenshot of a Word document. But usually what we've been seeing are artwork, right? It's kind of digital artwork. Each NFT is then stored. So when we talk about Bitcoin or Ethereum or transactions on a blockchain, it is a public record. Anybody can go click on it and see how many Bitcoins were changed and where they go from here to there. You can, you can see that. But you can also include information in there. You can include other information within the block. Sometimes people will put some kind of saying in there or some kind of text thread. Well, what NFTs allow you to do is actually put that NFT on the blockchain so that it's there. It's an immutable record. It's always available. Everybody can see, hey, you own this. I think Bored Apes or something like that is one of the picture, one of the companies that's been really prolific in selling these things for millions of dollars. And Unless you're completely in tune with technology and and living digitally almost at that point, you're really not going to understand what these are. And you're not going to understand how they work, but it's essentially a 
proof of ownership of a digital piece of artwork. So rather than just owning the Mona Lisa and putting it on your wall, you own this piece of digital artwork that can be accessed anywhere at any time by anyone, but you own it and everybody knows that you own it. And so to that degree, it's somewhat of a move to show that, hey, I've got a lot of money and this is what I've spent it on because a lot of people still don't understand the value that it could potentially have. And obviously with the market kind of downtrend that we've seen, these things have lost a lot of value. Nobody's willing to pay half a million dollars for a picture anymore. Yeah. So Gary V like actually hand drew all these pictures and has sold a ridiculous amount of them and has like waves of them and you can only buy them with cryptocurrency. You cannot buy them with actual cash money. You can only buy them with crypto. And so you have to have a crypto account to buy it. And then can you do you own that blockchain in addition to the NFT? It just shows that you own the particular image. So the blockchain is immutable and it's and and, and these are it's important. So no one can own the blockchain. It's just the hardware that keeps the transactions or not hardware even. NFTs are stored on the Ethereum platform, which is a probably the second runner-up, I guess we'd say, or the, the first runner-up in the digital asset space right behind Bitcoin. And Ethereum has a lot of other, it's the more technology-updated version of the blockchain, for, for lack of a better word there. And everything is, you know, you can go to Etherscan, you can see every transaction that's ever occurred. And what happens is, is you buy this NFT, and then in that transaction where you paid you know, 100 Ethereum for, excuse me, 100 Ether for that image, then the image is included in that. And everybody can see, hey, you got you bought this on this date and time. This is what you paid for it. And here's the image. Wow. Okay. So much information. So, okay, let's come back to the concept of a collaborative. So in collaborative, you sign a pledge, all four attorneys sign, and the pledge states, I wish I had one printed in front of me, but the pledge states a bunch of rules, has a bunch of rules. It's a contract, two pages long. And then at the end, both attorneys and both clients sign. And one of the concepts written in that contract is there's going to be a full voluntary disclosure in that any known mistakes will not be used against the party or any oversights. And so it also binds the attorney, the collaborative attorney, to... If they find out that their client is holding, you know, a Bitcoin account and they're not disclosing it, then they would have to withdraw from the process. And so they would not tell the other side, hey, my client is withholding information from you because that's confidential. But they would say, I am no longer able to be a part of this process. I'm going to have to withdraw, which would signal to the other attorney there's something being, you know, obviously something's off here. It could be that there are assets being hidden. So one of the things about crypto and collaborative is that collaborative has always been more technologically advanced than all the other systems. We were using Zoom before anybody else even knew Zoom existed. We have been using Apple products to develop spreadsheets and using computer screens during the middle of the sessions for everyone to build out the pages together, to build out the documents together. And so collaborative attorneys in and of themselves generally are more technologically advanced. They're looking for innovative ways to do things. They're looking for innovative ways to solve conflict. The collaborative method in and of itself is the most evolved method. It is the least amount of time, the most amount of quality product for the money that you spend. And, you know, the sessions, the attorneys and the clients are doing all the work when they're together in the session. So it's no waste of time, no telephone game. One person telling the other person, that a person telling that attorney, that attorney telling the client. 
You're not buying into any of that. So what that weeds out in and of itself in collaborative is not understanding of this. You know, anyone who's going to come into the collaborative process, most of the attorneys are going to be understanding of Bitcoin and crypto and NFTs and all of the blockchain concepts that go with it. And they're going to be able to help the clients. In addition to that, the transparency process of the collaborative process is going to allow the parties to feel more reassurance in the fact that they have actually received the information. Either you have a very astute attorney in litigation who has asked the most perfect questions in discovery and has received those responses or even gotten a forensic analysis of the computer or cell phone in order to be able to fully achieve full disclosure and transparency versus the pledge and the contract that you have in collaborative forces that the attorney has to agree to that, which means that they're committing themselves and their reputation as an attorney, their license to that concept. And so there's a just a much different field of play in collaborative versus in litigation when it comes to this topic. And a lot more information available because of the evolved nature of the collaborative process. So thinking of this concept, and we have gone long on this session, so thank you all for sticking with me, but I think that the information is so important and it's so interesting and it's mind-boggling for some people. So to kind of have this basis of information, I think is going to be helpful, but also to continue to promote that collaborative is beneficial in a multitude of ways. It's good for the overall balance of your life. It's good for your mental health. It's good for your ability to receive full transparency throughout the process. It's good for your time saving and that it's less time that you're having to go about this. It's a very simple discovery process in collaborative versus a very protracted discovery process in litigation. And so it's important to remember all of the wonderful things that collaborative can offer when you're having these conversations in your family, either together looking at the NCCAN website or if you're just, you know, doing the research yourself as an individual. But thank you so much, Ben, for providing so much information. One last thing I just want to touch on, the metaverse. What are your thoughts on the metaverse? Do you see alienation of affection claims or (laughs) cheating going on in the metaverse that affects divorces? Or do you see people having assets in the metaverse? What do you think? Is it going to come about? I mean, I'm still a little uncertain about everything going on with the metaverse. Like, whose metaverse is it going to be? Is it going to be Facebook's metaverse? Is it going to be Epic Games' metaverse? Is it going to be some other platform? Is it going to be the Twitter metaverse? Like, there's so many different ones that are out there. And then, two, you're talking about having owning digital property in a metaverse, which is now like you buy a house in a certain, you know, metaverse. And you actually have to pay money or cryptocurrency, whatever it may be for that. Now it's a property. And I guess it is property and then an asset that would be distributable. And certainly, too, yes, you can have situations where people are in video games and they play video games with someone a lot. And that would be essentially what they would be doing in a metaverse. And developing a relationship, I mean, people a lot more nowadays, people have these online relationships, which can, you know, obviously have negative effects to the real people that they're supposed to be in relationships with. So I think that's always something to keep in mind um, when you, when, you know, if you start to get involved in these kinds of things or, or start to buy stuff in a metaverse. Your honor, I object to my clients, meta wife and <laughs> meta house and meta Ferrari being included in the marital property spreadsheet. <laughs> I just can't with where we're on our way to these days. It's so intense. And I think it just leads back to, you got to have appropriate counsel to make sure that they're staying on top of new topics and they're able to advise you in every way. 
So thanks, Ben, for being on with us. And thanks to all of you for being here with Divorce Healthy. If you are thinking about divorce in the future, definitely we want you to know about all of your options and have as much information as possible. So we are here to help give you that information so you can make informed decisions. And we will see you next time. We'll be talking about adoptions and collaborative on our next session. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Divorce Healthy, your guide to mastering conflict resolution at home and in the workplace. To inquire about speaking engagements, purchase your copy of Ashley Nicole's book, The Cure for Divorce Culture, or to schedule your private orientation meeting, head to www.anrlaw.com. You can also find us on social media at ANR Law. Find a better way forward right here on Divorce Healthy.